Deep in the southern desert there stands the remnant of a citadel into which the survivors of the third cataclysm huddled for refuge. Although the Cyclopean walls of that place were toppled, the inhabitants built for themselves a home and were able to withstand the torments of the demons that ravaged the lands around them. The citadel they named Thal, after the legendary king who some say ruled it with justice and great powers, being as he was, a descendant of the gods. But beneath the citadel they discovered a stairway that led down into the bowels of the Underdark. Into these forbidding halls they sent explorers who returned with tales of terrifying creatures and sorcerous evils alongside the treasures that they had recovered. The promise of knowledge and riches was enough to tempt those most desperate for power, and so began the search for adventurers who would willingly enter the depths of the dungeons of Thal. Hi, this is Evil Jeff from Meanings and Musings, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Jay's gonna bring me back Plus one to attack. Oh, 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 I want to come back to the dice. Whoa, oh, 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 I think I need some good advice. I need a rope rescue. Oh, yeah. I need a rope rescue. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Che, and welcome back to Roleplay Rescue the podcast about rediscovering our lost tabletop role-playing games hobby. Following my recent conversation with GM Shadow, my good friend Barry from the Shadow of the GM podcast, which you can listen to in episode 5, I've been delving back into both the great library of GURPS and rekindling my love of the Mega Dungeon. This episode, I want to talk about the reasons why I've returned to the Dungeons of Thal, my own Mega Dungeon. For a return to the classic fantasy open table format. This is Season 12, Episode 7, Mega Dungeon. In the third booklet found inside the 1974 Dungeons & Dragons box set, which is usually referred to today as OD&D for original Dungeons & Dragons, we read some curious words. Quote, before it is possible to conduct a campaign of adventures in the mazy dungeons, it is necessary for the referee to sit down with pencil in hand and draw these labyrinths on graph paper. Unquestionably, this will require a great deal of time and effort and imagination. End quote. It goes on, quote, In beginning a dungeon, it is advisable to construct at least three levels at once, noting where stairs, trapdoors and chimneys and slanting passages come out on lower levels, as well as the mouths of chutes and teleportation terminals. In doing the lowest level of such a set, it is also necessary to leave space for the various methods of egress to still lower levels. A good dungeon will have no less than a dozen levels down, with offshoot levels in addition and new levels under construction so that players will never grow tired of it. There is no real limit to the number of levels, nor is there any restriction on their size other than the size of graph paper available. End quote. For me, this is the origin of what we today call a mega dungeon. 45 or more years on, I'm not sure that the warning that, quote, this will require a great deal of time and effort and imagination, 
is something for us to worry about. There are, after all, plenty of really cool Mega Dungeons out there we could buy and play. Nonetheless, it would be wise for us to think about them because they really are the original and, I would argue, simplest way back to the gaming table. So, what is a Mega Dungeon? I quite like Carl Bussler's definition. He's the host of the Mega Dungeon podcast, which sadly went away some years ago, and he spent the entire first episode answering that very question. And what it boils down to was this, quote, A large, self-contained and supernatural environment full of omnipresent danger into which adventurers make indefinite forays and seek fortune and fame, end quote. I like that definition because it's clear and succinct, but telling us what a Mega Dungeon is doesn't really answer the question of why we should play with one. The Alexandrian in his blog post Game Structures Part 3, Dungeon Crawl, says, quote, The most successful scenario structure in the history of role-playing games is the traditional Dungeon Crawl. In fact, I believe that much of D&D's success rests on the strength of the traditional dungeon crawl as a scenario structure, end quote. In truth, I'm not hugely keen on the term mega dungeon, because what we're really talking about is a very large dungeon crawl. Dungeon crawls are great for players because they know exactly what to do. The default goal is to find all the treasure, Some players take this a step further and view the dungeon crawl as having the goal of killing all the monsters or even clearing the dungeon. But for me, the pure goal of the dungeon crawl is for the players to find all the treasure. Of course, you can define treasure in very broad terms. In the original game, this meant literal coins and other items, but treasure can mean information, tomes of power, new paths to lost places maps or anything else that the players and their characters might consider valuable. The Dungeon Crawl game is also great for players because they know what to do. As the Alexandrian says, there is a clear default action. Quote, if a player is standing in a room and there's nothing interesting to do in the room, then they should pick an exit and go to the next room. End quote. The player always knows what to do next. Look for the treasure. If there's no treasure pick an exit. Dungeon crawls are also excellent for game masters because they are easy to prep and easy to run. It's very hard to screw up the dungeon crawl even if you are a totally new player or for our purposes coming back to gaming after a long period away. As the Alexandrian says, quote, collectively this means that even first-time DMs can reliably design and run a dungeon crawl without leaving either A. Their players stymied, or B. Themselves confused. This is huge. Thanks to the dungeon crawl, D&D can reliably create new DMs in a way that most other RPGs can't and don't. End quote. It's a structure, but not a straitjacket, because neither the players nor the game master is limited by the form. You can put almost anything in a mega dungeon and the players can always choose any other action in addition to the default action of pick an exit. Thus, in answer to the question, why should I run a mega dungeon? I would say this is the most successful game structure that you can deploy. It's virtually impossible to screw it up and your players will quickly grasp what they need to do. Remember, I introduce 11-year-old kids to this type of game and they don't hesitate to dive in and have a great time. 
And I'm pretty sure the reason for that is because it's so straightforward to play. So how do you get started with building a mega dungeon? Option A is to follow the advice given in the 1974 original Dungeons and Dragons book 3. Quote, in beginning a dungeon, it is advisable to construct at least three levels at once. End quote. You grab some squared graph paper, perhaps the classic 5mm per square type, and a pencil and a ruler, and from there you start drawing a map and stocking it with stuff. But if you're willing to drop a few pennies on some useful products, I've got two further suggestions for you. Firstly, I'd like to suggest that you should start where I started in 1983 and restarted in 2016. That's Redbox Dungeons & Dragons, that 1983 Beckme set I was talking about last episode. You can get lots more information through that episode, but the first adventure from 1983's Basic D&D contained a dungeon map and key for the surface level of a ruined castle. It walks you through how to run the dungeon, assuming you are totally new to role-playing games. And even better, it provides a second-level dungeon with full instructions on how to stock the map. The booklet contains useful tools for the new Dungeon Master that help you choose and place monsters, treasures, traps and tricks. It's a really great resource and it's $5 on DriveThruRPG. If doing it yourself is too much, however, then there's always option two, which is buy a good Mega Dungeon and run it. For me, however, this episode represents the point at which, after quite a bit of wrangling and hesitation, I decided to take the plunge and build my very own Dungeon Crawl open table game. The question, of course, given my predilection for otherworld immersion and deeper gaming themes, is why would I do that? Why return to the humble Dungeon Crawl and build the Dungeons of Thal? The truth is that I struggle to run a consistent, regular tabletop role-playing game on a schedule. Even with players from all over the globe, the issues of work and family life, plus time zones and the vagaries of life, make running any kind of RPG difficult. While the discussion on how to find players is very much a separate topic, I want to focus on a few reasons why players might come to a Mega Dungeon table. As I've already stated, dungeon crawls are great for players because they know exactly what to do. Find the treasure, and failing that, choose an exit from the location you're in. I think back to 2018, when I started this podcast, and remember why my friends started dropping out from Friday Night Roleplay. After a full week at work, I can't really handle a heavy roleplaying session. I need to recharge the sessions are fine, but I can't commit to a regular game night. It's probably best that I bow out so I don't disappoint the others. I'm not very good at coming up with ideas for characters. I feel like I'm letting the others down. I reckon that all three of these objections are defeated by the effective combination of a dungeon crawl and some straightforward RPG rules. Firstly, for a player, sitting at a table with a mega dungeon to explore is not overly filled with stress. Sure, you are exploring and solving problems like where did the orc hide the treasure and do I really need to kill him to get it? But it's not exactly at the same level as a detailed narrative campaign dealing with court intrigue. Frankly, if my 11-year-old students can handle it, your adult friends will be just fine, trust me. Secondly, 
They don't need to commit to a regular game. As each session can be an independent exploration of the dungeon, players can also come and go as they need to. Don't get hung up on creating a stable gaming group with the same players every time. Just provide the time, table and dungeon. Take it from there. This is what the Alexandrian terms running an open table. I'll talk about that in a minute. Finally, characterization is something that emerges over time in an old-school Mega Dungeon game. If you're using old D&D, just get the players to roll 3d6 six times, choose a class, and equip their character. From there, it's into the dungeon. If they survive, they can worry about a backstory and other details later. That's the true joy of playing with systems like 1981 or 1983 D&D. Dungeon calls are, then, a great way back to the gaming table because they're easy to create easy to run and easy to play in. Is it any wonder that D&D's biggest explosion came through the 1970s and 1980s when that's what most people started with? Even today, people like Matt Colville encourage new 5th edition Dungeon Masters to simply build a small dungeon and get playing. The Mega Dungeon is a great place to restart your role-playing hobby. Yet there is one more thing to say about the Mega Dungeon. It's not a limiting campaign model. It doesn't stop you from doing other things. Firstly, as already noted, it's a structure but not a straitjacket because neither the players nor the game master is limited by that form. You can put almost anything in a mega dungeon and the players can always choose any other action in addition to the default action of pick and exit. But on top of that, it's fairly trivial to add a nearby town and a small hex crawl to the structure of a mega dungeon game and expand your horizons, well, infinitely. It's no secret that I've become a fan of GURPS, the generic universal role-playing game from Steve Jackson Games. Actually, while I do enjoy the fourth edition of that game, first published in 2004 and still going strong, the old-school game master inside of me has recently rediscovered the third edition of GURPS. Thus, following my discussion with Barry, also known as GM Shadow, just a couple of weeks ago, back in episode 5, I've been delving back into that older edition of the game rules. GURPS runs on a 3d6 roll-low core mechanism. Want to attempt something that's dangerous or might not work? Well, test a relevant skill by rolling 3d6 under your skill's value. It's simple and easy to run. In fact, all the dice rolls are done using just the humble d6 die. Damage rolls use the dice plus add system, you know, roll X number of d6 and add any bonuses such as 2d6 plus 4 or something similar. And the third core mechanism is the reaction roll, another reason why any old school GM would feel an attraction to the system, which also rolls on 3d6 but this time makes high numbers good, rolling on a table to find out how NPCs react. And that roll high, by the way, is just so you can add bonuses from relevant advantages to try and gain a favourable reaction from anyone you meet. For me, the big draw to GURPS is this skill-based approach wherein the four main attributes are the basis for the skills your character learns. The basic numbers you roll against are derived from the basis of your IQ, dex, strength or health attributes. I like this because, again, it's simple but also because the attributes actually matter. What you have in dexterity will directly affect your skills with any dex-derived task. For one example, what Barry and I discussed back in episode 5, however, were the barriers to getting a GURPS game going. Most of these are in our heads, but, you know, because perception is reality, whatever we believe about GURPS is going to be real to us. So 
A weekend or so ago, I sat down and decided to bash out a modified version of the excellent GURPS light rules that I call Simple GURPS. After giving it much consideration, and at the request of one of the potential players in the Dungeons of Thal game, we opted to use the 3rd edition GURPS light rules, which are freely available from Steve Jackson Games. The main reason for using those, instead of the current 4th edition GURPS light booklet, is because GURPS light 3rd edition includes magic. And you kind of do want magic in a classic Mega Dungeon game, right? In terms of teaching neophytes to play GURPS, the first thing we're going to do is ignore all the stuff about character points. Or at least, we're going to begin with that approach. For anyone who's a confident GURPS player, we're working out some alternative notes to allow them to knock themselves out with the character point system, whereby they get to spend points to buy all their characters' traits, but we want to get folk playing quickly. So for anyone who wants to dive in and play, especially if they've not played GURPS before, we're just not going to worry about the character design and counting points in our Dungeons of Thal game. Taking a leaf out of original D&D and drawing on the third edition of GURPS random character creation rules, we're simply going to ask players to pick up 3d6 and roll them, writing down the numbers in order for strength, dexterity, intelligence and health. We're also importing a useful rule from 4th edition GURPS, creating what I suppose is a hack of the older GURPS engine. The old Dungeons & Dragons game that inspired the dungeon crawl used the idea of a character class, the type of adventurer that you were playing. Class was a bit like a profession, but honestly, it was just a way to categorise characters for... um, reasons. GURPS players tend to dislike the idea of classes. It's one of the reasons they're attracted to GURPS in the first place, but it's a convenient starting point for the neophyte. By the time we get to simple GURPS advanced, we'll be over it as a tool, building characters with the full GURPS rules, but for a beginner, it's a useful and familiar concept. GURPS 4th edition has a useful optional rule called wildcard skills. Quote, The names of these skills end in an exclamation point in order to distinguish them from normal skills. Wildcard skills are useful for omni-proficient characters, end quote. We're going to use this simple idea to evoke those classic classes from the old dungeon game. Wildcard skills work just like regular skills, as described in GURPS Lite, but they are far broader in scope and would, if you were using them, cost a lot more character points. We've come up with four classic adventurer types for players to choose from. The cultist, the fighter, the thief, and the wizard. All of these are basically defined as a one-word wildcard skill. Thus, any time a player declares an action that fits with their core role, such as when a thief tries to sneak past a guard, they will roll against that wildcard skill. In this case, the thief skill. From there, we're giving the players some quick choices for a couple of specialised skills, such as weapons choice and an expertise in something related to their core wildcard skill, and then we're equipping them to go into the dungeon. Roll attributes, pick an adventurer type and write that in that wildcard skill, choose weapons and one or two specialist skills, then if you're a wizard, choose a couple of spells, roll 3d6 for a random disadvantage, grab equipment, play. It takes less than 15 minutes to join the Dungeons of Thal Mega Dungeon game, and we can throw you straight down the stairs into the action. It's game on. (music) 
Alright then, so having chosen the rules for our game, how are we lowering the difficulty on getting the dungeon itself designed and stocked? Well, firstly, I'm taking a leaf out of Peter Del Orto's playbook, which made a huge difference to me back in early 2019. Peter's got a blog called Dungeon Fantastic, and his mega dungeon, Fell Tower, is designed for the GURPS RPG. He has a great collection of articles on the mega dungeon and how to build one. From his article, Mega Dungeon Mapping Best Practices Part 1, quote, If possible, draw a room or two or ten every day twice a day. I've got one and a half levels done and part of two more. How I do this is simple. The same way I write books. I just write down everything and I make myself draw a room or two every time I see the map. It fills in quickly that way." End quote. When I first began to work on Thal back in 2019, I decided to link this idea to the wisdom of BJ Fogg's Tiny Habits, and I did that by drawing one room on my Mega Dungeon map after I popped my coffee cup into the Tassimo and pressed the button for coffee. Thus, back then, I drew three levels of dungeon map in about as many weeks, just one room at a time. Of course, in 2023, other folk have coined this idea for themselves in the massively popular Dungeon 23 project. My point is that incremental dungeon mapping works really well. The second way we are lowering the difficulty level on designing the dungeon is by collaborating on the monster design. Designing NPCs, creatures and monsters in GURPS feels mm, a bit scary, basically because both Barry and I worry about the classic issue of getting it right. My anxious mind is always wondering, am I doing this right? While this is a great example of some classic thought distortions, namely making judgments, comparing with other games and dungeons and GMs, and then despairing, and of course black and white thinking, well, it's, it's something I still struggle with. I still struggle with thought distortions. Working with Barry is a relief and a support. We can both propose some stats for a monster or NPC and then run it past the other person. We can test it in the dungeon and tweak it as necessary. And because it's a collaborative process, we can feel a little more confident in our numbers. And by using an open table, wherein the players may well change session to session, we are free to change things when they don't work. The looser framework combined with the collaborative approach leads us to higher feelings of confidence. For that reason, Barry and I want to publish our monster stats to our blogs so that other aspiring dungeon GMs returning to the table can feel confident in giving both an open table mega dungeon game a go, as well as doing so with the basic version of GURPS as an alternative to classic D&D. Not everyone likes the abstraction of that old D&D system, so our work in simplifying GURPS for the dungeon environment will, we hope, help encourage more GMs and players back to the table. So that's basically how we're lowering the bar on getting started with GURPS Dungeoneering in the Dungeons of Thal. Oh, and just in case you didn't hear Barry and I talk back in episode 5, the reason we're not using Dungeon Fantasy role-playing game, or even Dungeon Fantasy for GURPS, at least not out the door, is simply because it's too high-powered for our tastes. We like the Zero to Hero. We like the original D&D feel of basically being a little bit crap. The final thing to talk about is what do I mean when I use the term open table? One of the big influences of the Alexandrian on my thinking over the past three or four years came through his open table manifesto. For our purposes today, what it boils down to is running a classic fantasy mega dungeon game which is open to whomever is interested and available for each individual gaming session. It's the opposite of a dedicated table. 
As the Alexandrian points out, the dedicated table is demanding. Quote, the way that most people play RPGs today, they have a regular group of five or six people who plan to all get together on a regular or semi-regular basis for 10 or 20 or more four to eight hour sessions. That level of commitment can result in truly amazing things, but that mode of play also comes at a cost. Part of that cost can be personal. Lots of people talk about how they can't play RPGs anymore because they just don't have the time to commit to them. Another part of that cost comes from the incredible difficulty of inviting new players to join your game. End quote. The proposal is to run games in an alternative style, analogous to the pick-up nature of playing catch to learn baseball or taking part in a schoolyard game of football. An open table was how I opened the school gaming club at my last school. The students could drop in, roll up a character, dive into the mega dungeon for a couple of hours and then come along next whenever they wanted. The table really quickly grew to having, I don't know, 15, 18 players with maybe six or seven in each individual session. The great thing about open tables though is that anyone can play at them. My current interested players for a one-shot are all going to be online, but there's nothing stopping players more local to me from picking up some characters and entering play as a separate group. Once you have the infrastructure of the dungeon crawl scenario in place, it's trivial to prep and run a session anytime. This is, as the Alexandrian points out, exactly how many of us used to play back in the day. Quote, To understand what I mean, let me cast your thoughts back to that time when I used to game all the time lunch hour or any other snatch of free time would roll around and we'd pull out our D&D manuals and our character sheets. One of us would volunteer to DM and that guy would grab whatever dungeon he was currently working on or he had just read through and we would start playing. Eventually lunch hour would come to an end and we'd pack up our things and the next time we played we'd either continue exploring that same dungeon or we'd start exploring some other dungeon possibly with a completely different DM. Maybe we'd use the same characters, maybe we would have rolled up a new character or feel in the mood to play somebody else from our stable. Whatever worked, we did it, end quote. On a practical level, what this approach does is make scheduling less of a problem. Rather than wrangling about who can or cannot attend the sessions, the GM instead sends out a message to anyone interested and says, we're playing on, say, Friday, anyone interested? As the prep is the same each time, the setup is quick and simple, and the players don't need to be consistent. Well, it takes a lot of pressure off everyone. To make it work, you need six things. Quick character creation, easy access system, open group formation, a default goal, a default action, and then regenerative or extensible content. As I was explaining earlier in this episode, for Thal, we're using a simplified GURPS 3rd edition approach with random attributes and wildcard adventurer types. This gives us the quick character creation we desire. Ideally, it should take less than 15 minutes to get a player into a game. We're going to stick to the basics of play. We're focusing on players rolling 3d6 low under their skill or attribute values and learning to roll damage dice. The rest will come as you play. Don't get bogged down with encumbrance. Stick to the basic play mechanisms. Reference spells as you need them. Just get playing. 
playing an open table style that means having the characters enter the dungeon and telling the players that they need to get out before the session time expires. This means that each session can run discreetly and it doesn't matter as players and or characters change each session. This open formation of group as opposed to the more common dedicated crew will make running a game easier and allow you to tweak the dungeon between sessions. The dungeon crawl of course gives you the default goal and the default action. What do the characters do? They explore the dungeon looking for treasure. How do the players do it? They pick an exit and use it. The last point though is crucial. Using regenerative or extensible content. Well, dungeons are great for this because you can easily reuse the dungeon map, restocking rooms or shifting challenges around between sessions. And you can also easily add more dungeon to the map new levels in the traditional style or extensions to existing areas. You can knock a hole in a wall, sketch in and key a new area and Bob's your auntie's living lover. Remember, you can even decide to go on the surface and run a hex crawl. But that's what I mean when I talk about an open table. For more information, hit up the alexandrian.net slash gamemastery hyphen 101 and click the link for the open table manifesto. It's really amazing stuff. Now, if you don't mind... I'm going to go and add another room to the Dungeons of Thal. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question or comment, then please hop over to speakpipe.com slash roleplayrescue, where you can leave up to a 90-second message. If you prefer, open up a voice memo app on your device, record what you want to say or ask, and then just email it directly to me via hello at rpgrescue.com. This week, oh, sadly only one call, and I guess I'm maybe shouting into the void, but it's nice to know at least Jason was listening. Hey, Jason here, just listening to you talk to Ireland in episode 1203. Great to hear Ireland's voice again. Interesting discussion. Um... Yeah, don't have a lot of comment on it. Just glad you're putting the stuff out there. It, I, I do think that some of these game worlds now are too fleshed out. To be honest, I mean, we, you know, Chaosium's now putting out ten books for the Colts at Grantha, and that's great for the people that are into that and looking forward to that. And I'm happy for them, but I, I don't know. It's, it almost seems like overwhelming amount of detail. And then we, you get in the problem you've run into in the past with these worlds where now you're, you end up with players that know more about the world than the GM does or, or you end up with arguments about what is canon, what is not. And, you know, I think that looser world that the GM's familiar with and the players aren't, it maybe has some, some validity. But I don't know. Anyway, great discussion. We'll talk to you soon. So that's all I've got. That's everything on Mega Dungeons this week, plus a great call from Jason. Massive thanks to him for calling in. And of course, Jason is from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Please keep the comments and questions coming. Big thanks also to the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show. I also really appreciate the encouragement to keep casting. Thanks to every one of the torchbearers, shieldbearers and swordbearers from patreon.com slash rpgrescue. Thanks to John from Tale of Manticore for the show music and a big thanks to you for listening. I hope you found this episode useful. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. I'll see you again next time. Game on.